Hi, I'm Willow Belden, and you are listening to Out There, the podcast that explores big questions through intimate stories outdoors. Support for Out There comes from Kula Cloth, making personal hygiene in the outdoors simple and sanitary. The Kula Cloth is a clean, eco-friendly alternative to toilet paper for women and anyone who squats when they pee. For 15% off your order, go to kulacloth.com and enter the promo code out there at checkout. That's K-U-L-A cloth.com, promo code out there. So I have something to tell you. Out There is turning five in a few days. It's hard to believe we've been producing the show for half a decade, but I guess that's what happens when you're having fun. To celebrate, we are organizing our first ever live storytelling night, and you're invited. If you've ever been to a storytelling event hosted by The Moth, this will be a little like that. It'll be an evening of live stories told by listeners like you. We know that all of you are spread across the globe, so instead of holding the festivities in a particular city, we're doing it online. That way, you can participate from wherever you are in the world. The event will be on May 7th, and the theme for the evening is Beginners. If you have a story to tell that relates to the theme Beginners in some way, we would love to hear from you. Head over to our website, outtherepodcast.com, for all the details on how to get involved. Otherwise, mark your calendars for May 7th and get ready to curl up with a glass of wine and hear amazing stories from your fellow Out There fans. Thank you so much for listening to the show. It's been a wild ride so far, and I'm excited to see what the next five years bring for the podcast. And now, on to our story for today. It's a beautiful thing when children fall in love with something you love. Whether or not you have kids of your own, watching them gravitate toward your favorite hobbies is a delight. That is certainly true for a woman named Elizabeth Miller. She's an environmental journalist by trade, and in her free time, she teaches kids how to ski. Teaching children how to carve turns down a mountain and watching them revel in the snow is deeply gratifying to Elizabeth. But recently, with winter weather becoming ever more unpredictable, she's started wondering whether she's actually doing kids a disservice. What will winter look like for the kids she teaches when they're grown up? And what will happen to this generation of skiers if it stops snowing? I'll let Elizabeth take it from here. On a winter Saturday afternoon, the sunlight is fading, and so are the three middle schoolers I've been teaching to ski. We've spent the day playing with turn shapes and styles and practicing speed control. They joke as everyone takes a turn with skis that seem to pull their feet in different directions, and they tumble into the snow. The three of them are friends from a softball league, and their families drove up from Texas together to ski for a week in New Mexico. After their lesson with me, they'll spend days exploring more of the mountain with their parents, so we've worked hard to make sure they're ready to ride the taller chairlift and tackle more advanced terrain. But it's getting late and the clouds have rolled in and the temperature has started to drop. I know what's coming, but to them it just feels like time for another hot chocolate break. 
We're standing near a bank of pine trees when the first snowflakes start to spin down from the sky, white against the dark backdrop. The girls have been talking and laughing together, but this hush falls over all three of them. They look up, and for a rare, quiet minute among middle schoolers, they just watch. They've never seen snow fall before. A couple times in their lives, it snowed overnight where they live, and they woke up to a white dusting, but they've never actually seen it fall from the sky. We all pause and stand still for this moment. I take for granted that one late October morning when I'm walking my dog, we'll round the corner to the view of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains from our neighborhood and the peaks will be frosted in white. I'll be able to trace the ribbons of the ski runs that face town. I trust there will be evenings when snowflakes swirl through the streetlights and that I will wake up to see a pristine carpet of white in my backyard and the lilac bush grasping clumps of snow. When this trio of girls stand still to watch snow fall for the first time, I remember this is a gift. For almost a decade, I've spent my winter weekends teaching children how to ski. Between all the wedge turns, we fit in time to try to catch snowflakes on our mittens. I tweak exercises meant to help kids learn how to flex and extend their legs, so they're reaching all the way down to scoop up snowballs we can throw at the trees. My secret weapon for a four-year-old on the verge of a meltdown is to pause to make snow angels. Something about lying on the ground, imagining you have wings, restores them. And then we get back on the lift, and on our next turns, we keep our arms out as though we are still flying. I tell parents part of my job is to ease the next time they're trying to coax little arms into a parka and little feet into boots by leaving their kids excited to come back. What I want them to remember next time and for years to come is the fun. I want them to remember how much they loved it. But lately I've been wondering if cultivating this passion isn't a little cruel. They're falling in love with what we're all about to lose. The future looks grim for winter. The Climate Impact Lab predicts the coming decades will see a declining number of days at or below freezing in the most popular ski towns. For Taos in New Mexico and Breckenridge in Colorado, the ski season could shorten by as much as one-third by 2080. For Jackson Hole in Wyoming, Sun Valley in Idaho, and Deer Valley in Utah, the season might be cut in half. Truckee, California could lose as much as three-fourths of its cold days. Other studies estimate that timeline may be much sooner, and that downhill skiing days could drop by half by the time the five-year-olds I'm teaching now are my age. Many ski resorts have installed more snowmaking equipment to cover some of those losses. But that equipment requires water and sub-freezing temperatures to work, both of which may be harder to come by. 
What's even more discouraging is that even with dramatic moves to wind and solar power, and even if the United States realigned with the carbon emissions targets set in the Paris Agreement, we can't fix the problem anytime soon. What we're working toward will only slow the progress of change. According to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, we won't be able to restore the kind of winters, the blower days people remember from a generation ago, for decades or perhaps centuries to come. Warming trends matter in lots of ways that are far less frivolous than anyone's favorite sport, like snowmelt that provides drinking water for millions of people downstream. They also represent a multi-million dollar loss to mountain communities that built their economies around winter recreation. But when I think about what climate change means for my own opportunities to ski, what's at stake in these climate policy debates feels much more personal. On Christmas Day, I skied with my mom, who turned 70 this year. I don't know that when I'm her age, I'll be able to celebrate the holiday that way. Kids growing up will likely live in this interim window between when we start to change our course and when those changes begin to show their effects. I wonder if they'll have any chance at all at letting winter sports reshape their lives the way they did mine. I teach skiing now because I love it, but when I first applied for the job, it was an act of financial desperation. I'd taken a full-time position at a newspaper in Boulder, Colorado in midsummer, and by November, it was clear that an entry-level reporter's salary wasn't going to make ends meet. I started looking for a second job that would fit around my 9-to-5 schedule, and when I saw an ad recruiting new ski instructors, the weekends-only schedule seemed like it might work. When I interviewed, they asked me about how I'd teach kids, and I drew from a rusty corner of my brain to talk about what I'd learned in a yoga teacher training program years before. I said I'd try to make everything a game. That, it turned out, was at least a right enough answer. Of course, I quickly learned that the paycheck isn't all that generous or reliable for a ski instructor, but it did boost my bottom line, and perhaps more importantly, it meant that I could ski on years when otherwise I wouldn't have been able to afford it. I made friends with people who shaped their lives around ski trips, people who had space on a condo floor where I could crash for a night, people who were willing to carpool to chase powder days. I'd been a dedicated outdoors person before, but teaching skiing solidified that time outside wasn't just a hobby. It was central to my lifestyle. I think, too, that teaching kids reminded me to play, to be patient with someone else's timeline, and to worry less about the outcome and more about letting the process flow. My days at the Scaria also mandated two days a week when I didn't turn on my laptop, didn't look at my email, and didn't answer work-related calls. It saved me from burning out. How I saw myself shifted, too, as I tackled steep mogul fields and tight trees. I exercised my courage like a muscle, and then I took it to work with me on Monday mornings. Hey, it's Willow. Elizabeth's story continues in a moment. But first, since we're on the subject of skiing, I wanted to tell you about something that might interest you if you're heading out on a ski trip. In fact, it's something you should know about if you're doing any sort of travel. I know it's not the most comfortable topic, but um, travel-related constipation is a real thing and very uncomfortable. 
That's Jim Lamancusa. He's the founder of Kusa Tea, which is one of our sponsors for this episode. Kusa makes premium instant tea, and they've recently launched a new series of herbal teas that have medicinal properties. One of our teas is called Mellow Movement, and it uses ginger, fennel, and senna leaf to just get your digestion going again. And I travel back and forth to Asia quite often to go to our organic tea farms, and I can say that it really does work. For 30% off your order at kusatea.com, just enter the promo code out there at checkout. That's C-U-S-A-T-E-A.com, promo code out there. Support for this episode also comes from Colorado Edition, a news podcast for and about communities in Colorado. In less than 30 minutes, they'll get you up to speed on the most important news of the day, bring you the context behind that news, and give you a deeper look at stories that matter. Colorado Edition airs Monday through Thursday at 6.30 p.m. on KUNC, and you can also find the show wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to Elizabeth's story. In 2015, I moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico, expecting to spend just one year here. I interviewed at the nearby ski area, thinking I'd round out the experience by teaching and skiing locally for a season. I spent my first day as a new hire on the beginner hill, learning this ski school's progression for lessons. But they'd given me a lift ticket good for the whole mountain, and it had snowed all morning. So when our instructor announced a one-hour break for lunch, I skipped the cafeteria and skied immediately to the chairlift. At the top, I turned toward the first advanced run I saw and found myself drifting through powder as deep as my boots on a nearly untracked run that I had all to myself. It was so good, I skied it twice. And on the second lap, I remember thinking, maybe I'll stay here for a while after all. Two years later, what looked to be a slow start turned into a winter that just didn't happen. I rode the chairlift over bare grass and watched elk graze on that run that had sparked my love for this place. As we made laps on the two or three runs covered in manufactured snow, I started dividing one run into thirds vertically, skiing the left side, then the middle, then the right, searching for something that resembled variety. Everyone's skis became rock skis as Ski Patrol opened dubiously covered terrain. We stepped over exposed knobs of rock and steered around saplings. Most of the mountain was never skiable that year. The next year was the opposite, one of the snowiest winters in recent memory. But in the midst of this incredibly generous season, it rained repeatedly at the ski area. I boarded the chairlift at 10,000 feet in elevation in a falling mist, hoping it turned to snow at higher elevation. Instead, by the time my skis hit the landing strip at 12,000 feet, my jacket was flaking off ice. Afterwards, the aspen trees glittered with ice casings on every limb, and for days when the wind rattled the pine trees, it shook loose crystal bits that littered the snow. We could glide over them just the same, but they felt like sparkling reminders that change is coming. That was when I really started thinking about kids learning how to ski now 
and running the decades forward. By the time they're my age, it's likely they'll face more seasons like the year before last, when the skiing is on machine-made snow that's chopped up and groomed to smooth each night in an effort to keep it from turning into a single sheet of hard pack, assuming it gets cold enough at night to make snow, and that the creek that runs past the ski area's water tanks continues to flow enough to fill them. Skiing itself is a carbon-intensive undertaking, from the electricity to run the chairlifts to the fuel to get to the ski area. Some days, just driving to my local mountain feels like further contributing to its demise. And of course, those families who drive up from Texas and Oklahoma to ski in New Mexico and Colorado every year add to the emissions that are shortening ski seasons. By the time their kids are grown, spring break skiing might be a dubious proposition. The skiing community is waking up to this existential threat. Professional snowboarder Jeremy Jones founded Protect Our Winters to draw attention to how climate change was making for shorter seasons and fewer deep days. The organization estimates 34 million Americans identify as climbers, skiers, snowboarders, trail runners, or mountain bikers. And they're mobilizing those people as voters with an eye on the 2020 elections. Ski resorts have been a little slower on the uptake. The notable exception has been Aspen Skiing Company, which has been investing in sustainable business choices and clean power since 1999. It also now runs a Give a Flake marketing campaign to motivate skiers and snowboarders as climate advocates. Just in the last two years, Vail Resorts and Powder, which owns several ski areas, have gotten on board. Last year also saw outdoor retailers and manufacturers finally form the Outdoor Business Climate Partnership, which calls for decarbonizing the grid. But again, no matter their wins now, there's already enough carbon dioxide and methane in the atmosphere to drive warming trends for decades. We can revolutionize the systems that govern how our homes are lit and heated, what our car engines run on, how we eat and what we buy, but we will not live to see the gains made through that effort. Maybe the kids I coax into making their first parallel turns, the kids I watch tumble into snowbanks and laugh as they flounder through snow so deep it looks like they might have to swim out, will remember this when they get older. Maybe they'll think of pine boughs drooping with the weight of snow and the blue light of afternoon as the sun drops behind the aspens and shade falls over the ski runs. I hope they do, and that when it's their turn to vote, they'll look for people who also want a snowy winter. Not people who joke how nice global warming will be because they can golf year-round. Not people who say, wouldn't it be great if it stops snowing because then we won't have to shovel the driveway anymore. I don't preach to any of them. I don't suggest they tell mommy and daddy to vote for Democrats next time. I just hope they remember that moment around 3.45 in the afternoon when I hand them back to their parents and they plead for one more run before the chairlifts stop. Their mittened hands tug at their parents' coats, both eager to keep playing and to share with their moms and dads what it feels like to slide downhill. I hope they grow up to be adults who turn that desire toward their own children and grandchildren, who hope to tug them, too, into the experiences they remember. I hope they remember what was here in a way that empowers them to fight for what will be a vanished world.
I know what that's like. When I was growing up, my mom taught me to ice skate on a frozen pond in our hometown. I wobbled over uneven layers of ice and past cattails held fast at their stems. Sometimes the ice froze into clear patches, like windows into the water below. Now those ponds don't freeze solid some winters. I don't skate much anymore because it so often requires spinning in circles indoors, under fluorescent lights, past advertisements, and in crowds. But what I learned on the ice about finding wonder in small details, loving the blend of sun and a nip on the wind, and even appreciating a less than perfectly groomed surface sticks with me. Even though that place itself is gone, it still shapes how I look at the world. Really, what I have gained through my time outdoors is a love for a certain way of living and an appreciation for the planet that translates to curiosity and affection for places from the bayous to the desert. Even if the world will soon be very different, even if change is inevitable, whatever comes next will bring with it wonders of its own. My trust now must lie not with the belief that snow will always come, but that whatever comes as the world changes will be worth loving too. So, is it cruel to teach these kids to love skiing? I actually think it's essential. It's hard and it's a little sad. There may be days remembering what it was like to ski in powder to their knees is as much a burden as it is a buoy. But I have to believe they'll carry those lessons into whatever planet they inherit. I hope they'll believe they might give their children and grandchildren what they recall from decades ago. I trust that they'll bring curiosity and affection to learning that new landscape. I hope as well that they will have faith that someday it will really snow again. That was Elizabeth Miller. She's an environmental journalist based in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Special thanks to Ben Montoya for helping with sound design for this story. Support for this episode comes from Kula Cloth a high-tech pee cloth for anyone who squats when they pee. It's a great alternative to toilet paper whenever you're in the backcountry. It's fun to see other people get as excited about it as I was at the very beginning. Like, people love it. That's Anastasia Allison, the founder of Kula Cloth. I got a message from a woman who told me that her normal sort of routine with day hiking was that she didn't pee. She just held it because she didn't want to pack in and out toilet paper. And now she has the Kula and it, I mean, it's been life changing. For 15% off your order, go to KulaCloth.com and enter the promo code out there at checkout. That's K-U-L-A cloth, 
com promo code out there. A huge thank you to everyone who has made financial contributions to Out There. If you'd like to get in on the fun, just head to outtherepodcast.com and click support. Gifts from listeners make up about half of our operating budget. So I mean it when I say we couldn't make this show without you. That's it for this episode. Our strategic advisor is Alex Eggerking. Our advertising manager is Jessica Taylor. Ben Montoya is our production intern. And our theme music was written by Jared Arnold. We'll see you in two weeks. And in the meantime, have a beautiful day. Be bold. Go outside and find your dreams. <laughs>